Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's regular weekly dispatch from Brexit land. This week we're looking at a sector that made its fears about the potentially catastrophic impact it faces from Brexit very clear, almost as soon as the referendum on Britain leaving the EU was announced. In fact, I first discussed its concerns with one of my guests today nearly two years ago, back in October 2015. This is the higher education and research sector. Britain's universities and academic research establishments, centres of learning and teaching with a global reputation for excellence that, say those who work in them, owes a huge amount to Britain's membership of the European Union. Now, Brexit could affect these institutions' staff. Around 15% of teaching and research staff at the UK's 132 universities are EU nationals. It could also affect their students. More than 200,000 UK students and 20,000 staff have studied or worked at European universities thanks to the Erasmus scheme. And EU students currently represent around 5% of the UK student body, far more than that at universities in central London. And it could finally affect their funding. British universities have used EU funds to build new labs and lecture theatres. In some cases, EU money makes up to 15% of universities' overall income. And of course, with the UK's national research budget below international averages, EU money here is vital, worth more than 7 billion euros in the last seven-year funding cycle. And beyond all that, of course, is the fact that education and research are international activities par excellence. Everyone benefits from the freest possible exchange, the fewest possible constraints, the best possible collaboration. So, will Brexit end all of that? With me to answer this and other questions are Rachel Hall, who's the editor of The Guardian's Higher Education Network, Mike Galsworthy, a visiting researcher at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and co-founder of Scientists for EU, and Alison Goddard, editor of Research Fortnight. Welcome to all of you. Mike, I'd like to start with you, if we could. You've been campaigning since pretty much the day that the referendum was called. In fact, we spoke a couple of years ago for an article about this this whole issue uh, that I was working on. Can you outline for us, sort of in, in broad terms, basically, how significant you feel that EU membership has been for British universities, science and research? What's made the difference? 
Well, it wouldn't just be me, because during the referendum debate, there was, of course, a House of Lords inquiry into the value of EU membership for the UK. And the conclusion of that was that there was overwhelming support from the UK science and higher education community for EU membership. The main reasons centre on uh, people, uh, policy and uh, participation, collaboration. So with people you have freedom of movement um, and also you have various grants that actively support people being able to move around to the best labs within uh, Europe but also attract people from around the world and mm -hmm. those have been highly successful. With policy we've been shaping policies together with um, our European team and that has been fantastically useful for bringing down barriers, regulatory barriers or policy barriers, allowing us to work together, which then sets it up for this common pooling of investment to do the collaborative frameworks that we have, whereby you can put together dream teams from right across the continent in order to do the big science, which is now beating um, America in terms of prestige. So it's Everything that goes with lowering barriers to innovation, lowering barriers to collaboration and working together as a team to crack the things that, that matter to us all. So leaving the EU immediately steps us down from that policy seat because we give up our MEPs and we give up our position on mm. the council. We don't have a seat at the table anymore. Quite. Mm. Um, and if we throw away the freedom of movement framework, not only does that do damage in itself to mobility, but as we saw with Switzerland, it is intimately linked with how the EU has been running their science programme. So could take us out of many strands of that, including coordinating some projects. Do, do you just want to um, explain this, the Swiss example? Because it's quite relevant, isn't it, to, sure. to where we are? So what happened was, and it's quite a complex story, which I will make short, hmm. was that in February 2014, the Swiss had a vote on mass immigration and voted by less than a percent in order to go back to a quota system rather than to keep the free movement agreement that they have with the EU. This meant that they felt unable to sign Croatia into the whole freedom of movement scheme, which meant that the EU said, right, well, if you don't honour that contract, we can't let you into Horizon 2020, the big science programme, mm -hmm. as full partners. So they dropped out. Then they negotiated a partial deal, a halfway house, and then they came up with a solution um, at the beginning of 2017, which was... Tell you what, this freedom of movement framework works for our citizens, but we want to prioritise our Swiss locals for jobs. Can we have a deal whereby we advertise jobs to Swiss locals before advertising them internationally? And the EU said, yeah, go on then. And they were fully back in the science programme. So there was a compromise possible, but I mean, they were they were they were basically kicked out uh, the moment they they, they 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 brought the door down on uh, uh, on free movement. Yes. So they were immediately out as a third country, which means that they could buy their way back in on some schemes. But in other parts of the program, they couldn't mm. and they couldn't have coordinating roles. And so they worked furiously late into the night in order to replicate a lot of EU schemes just at the national level, including, for example, Erasmus as well, where they actually paid double for that because they paid for the students going out and they paid for the students coming in just to keep it going. Because all of these European schemes, 
that they had been in before were incredibly valuable to how they do uh, science and higher education in Switzerland. Okay, well that might be some kind of precedent um, and we'll return to the importance of free movement uh, a little bit later. Um, Rachel, can I turn to you? You're dealing with higher education professionals every day uh, at the Higher Education Network, Guardians Higher Education Network. How big a concern would you say Brexit is for them and what is their biggest worry or or set of worries? Well, for EU academics, I think it's fair to say there's a lot of anxiety. They're effectively living in a sort of state of suspended animation while they wait for assurances from government around what the visa regime is going to be after Brexit. Um, And there's a lot of uncertainty around that. And some of the reports and leaks that have come out suggest that it might be harsher than expected. Government said that they're they're keen to keep the brightest and best, and obviously they're referring to researchers among those. But that's not much comfort when there's also news coming out that they might not be able to, their families might not be able to come with them. They Mm. might have to apply for settled status, and who knows what kind of paperwork that involves. Or there might be a minimum salary threshold that excludes early career researchers. On the flip side, there's also a lot of reports coming out of staff being poached uh, or attempts to poach staff from other EU universities. Um, The provost of UCL said that 95% of his senior researchers had received approaches from other EU universities. And I suppose for UK academics, what they're worried about is losing access to funding. There's already reports that it's been difficult to find partnerships with EU academics to apply for EU grant funding and also about the kind of access to networks that they'll have after after Brexit. Hmm. Yeah, okay, well, let's pick that up with Alison, um, if we can. I mean, funding clearly is one of the, one of the main issues here. Um, how important has EU funding actually been for, for, for British research and British science? And how good have UK establishments been at securing a a slice of it. Can you just give us a bit of an overview of, of you know, what the main programmes are and, 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 and how relatively important they've been? Certainly. So in this uh, situation, the UK is actually in quite an unusual position in that it's a net contributor to the overall EU budget. And that's one of the reasons why Margaret Thatcher famously went with her handbag and uh, negotiated the money back. rebate. Yeah. Uh, But on the scientific and the research programmes, actually the UK does very well out of the EU. And that is because the UK is a world-class country for science and for research. And uh, because these uh, monies are available through a competitive tender uh, basis. Mm -hmm. And so the UK actually gets much more money out of the science and research budget than it puts in nominally. And and what uh, what are the programmes specifically? So the, the, the big programme is, uh, at the moment, it's called Horizon 2020. Uh, so this is the eighth of the framework programmes that have been running uh, by the EU since, I think, 1984. Mm-hmm. And so this programme, it's a seven-year programme. Uh, it's thematic and uh, universities can apply for grants uh, in collaboration with other researchers based in various countries. At the moment, Horizon 2020 is open to countries from outside the European Union. And so one of my sort of questions is, I do believe that Brexit is going to happen. Uh, I don't believe it's in the national interest for it to happen, but we are where we are. Mm -hmm. And I think really now universities have to make the best of what they've got. And so I think the crucial thing will be to negotiate 
uh, with the EU in such a way that, that the UK can retain some of the benefits it has from its uh, membership of the Horizon 2020 program. Mm. And also, I think possibly you know, to look at the ways in which um, international collaborations have been possible prior to EU membership and to see whether there are ways of exploring how we retain those vital international links whilst at the same time letting go of, of the mm. EU membership. Of, of European membership, yes. I mean, they will all require some kind of conditions or, or, or payments or, or, or exchange, one, one imagines. Mike, there's, there's, um, there are other programmes as well, aren't we, that, that, that Britain is, is actually is particularly uh, uh, strong in, the European research grants, uh, the, the kind of like the highest level, uh, if you like, of, uh, of scientific work, a lot of which uh, is done in Britain with, with continental European researchers. Okay, so to break down the set of schemes that we've got on mm. the go, if we deal with the main science programme first, Horizon 2020, which runs from 2014 to 2020, the main things that you should know about it within it are uh, grants for exceptional individuals like the European Research Council grants and the Mary Curie grants to go to labs and other places and do very high-level work. There is also the main bread and butter of the programme, which is the International Collaboration Grants, where you can put together seven, eight, nine, twelve countries all working on the same thing, and these things can run from three years to five years. There is also support there for a lot of small businesses, small innovative business, and sometimes large businesses, to work with universities within those clusters. There's a special instrument to support small businesses, and there are also joint programs between large industries and academia, such as uh, the Innovative Medicines uh, initiative or uh, other initiatives around aerospace and uh, car manufacturing and what sort of what sort of budget are we talking about here i mean what's the what's the what's the global number that that, that that's been coming into the uk uh, in, in in within these frameworks so there is about 1 billion euros per annum coming into the uk from the horizon 2020 uh, framework i think there's a few uh, hundred million as well that comes in via structural funds which complement this science mm. program and are dedicated to boosting the infrastructure of struggling regions and increasingly that involves supporting a lot of research and innovation activities and that's been very useful to areas such as for example Northern Ireland and, and supporting uh, industries there. But we are talking about a whole kind of ecosystem that's grown up over the 40 years of the UK's membership of the EU, aren't we? I mean, it's going to be a tremendous wrench to possibly lose that. And replacing it is going to be a very tall order. Rachel? Yes, that's true. I mean, governments also, they have outlined some ideas about things that might replace some of the programmes. And in the industrial strategy, there was an extra two billion pledged for science and innovation that's intended to sort of help with, out with the transition. But... Um, it, yeah, but it's 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 certainly going to be difficult. There's a, there's a lot of there's a lot that that will need to to change and new systems that need to be negotiated. Erasmus is is another one where the UK mm. might choose to do their own student mobility program to replace the EU one. Um, and as you mentioned, the stru the structural funds are um, the stru the structural funds. They're an area where the UK pays in more than it gets out, so it, it might prefer to look for a, for its own substitute for those there. as well. Yeah. 
Alison, you want to come in? Uh, yes, I mean, so, I mean, science is an inherently international thing and has become ever more so. So uh, in 1981, 90% of what the UK produced was domestic. It's now less than half. And yeah, that, that's an incredible trend that's, that's ongoing. And I think the trick will be to retain that internationalism whilst losing membership of the European Union. And I'm sort of looking to those institutions, those European institutions that were set up prior to the formation of the EU. You're trying to see whether there are some lessons there that we can learn. So I'm thinking about things like CERN, the particle physics laboratory that's outside Geneva. Yeah, that's completely separate from the European Union Mm -hmm. and the UK will retain its membership. Other agencies like the European Space Agency, again, you know, this was founded prior to the establishment of the European Community and then the European Union. But it's since sort of become ever closer to the European Union with a view to it becoming a European Union agency. And that is why the UK participation in the Galileo programs of uh, positioning satellites and the Copernicus mm-hmm. Earth Observation programs are at risk. And it's because the EU has co-opted a existing scientific organization to become one of its agencies and i'm just sort of wondering how you go about unpicking that that's going to be the task for the next two years and beyond that sort of divorce process and this might be the moment to bring in the euratom question where do we stand on that what are the big issues around Mm. euratom to to have a word firstly about the copernicus and, and galileo programs um the european space agency is independent of the EU, but it has been doing these programs in collaboration with the EU because the EU has been funding it. So when it enters areas of security, for example, in some of those satellite programs, and the EU is funding it, then that starts jeopardizing outside partners. So that's where you've got some of the issues that need to be sorted uh, fairly. Yeah, but you do have those overlaps. And to make the broader point, European science is a fantastically beautiful ecosystem um, wherein you've got a lot of bodies that are completely independent of the EU, some slightly overlapping with them. And then the EU is also the glue between a lot of nations in order to replicate that multinational collaboration feel that we do so well in Europe, um, specifically for a whole set of different projects. So it's about finding our feet in the ecosystem after coming out of the EU, which Mm. is the tricky thing, and it will take multilateral and and bilateral new structuring in order for us to stay in there in a healthy way and also have a policy voice, which otherwise we would lose. And to replicate what we have now. And Euratom, you were going to... So Euratom is a treaty from 1957, one of the original treaties. It remains its own treaty, but it has become governed by the institutions of the EU for efficiency. So uh, the the Council, the Parliament, the Commission, the Mm. European Court of Justice. Did we actually need to leave it is still an open legal question question that was not resolved in any court and you have different opinions on it. But as described in an inquiry by uh, the business committee of the government, the decision to leave Euratom was one made by Theresa May herself, the Prime Minister herself, and they believe it to be based on the European Court of Justice Mm. having jurisdiction over it and that crossing her red line. And they quoted as an unforeseen and unfortunate consequence of this red line. So there is still a lot of debate around it that whether this was a good idea Mm. or not, because there wasn't adequate 
preparatory work done by the civil service or adequate communication to the nuclear and research communities about this. So we're now stuck with basically three options on it. One is to try and fix it ourselves within the two-year time period. And the uh, nuclear industry say that basically that's not going to happen, mm -hmm. especially with the international agreements that stem from it. The second one is to hope that we can get some kind of associate membership. Uh, the risk with that is is there are tons of frameworks that we're trying to keep after we get past the divorce bill. Mm. And it's going to be a lot trickier than we think because part of the Euratom deal is uh, free movement of uh, nuclear scientists. And then the third one is to say, well, let's just revoke our withdrawal notice for Euratom and then we can continue as normal if the EU will give us that blessing and then we can work this out further down mm. the line. But let's take it off our plate for the moment because we are losing out already through the uncertainty and not knowing whether a deal is going to come through. It, it is interesting, isn't it, how often um, we come back to these kind of unintended consequences of red lines, government red lines, like 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 free movement, like the role of the, the European Court of Justice. It's a really a recurring theme. Um, uh, Rachel, you mentioned earlier, uh, um, you know, I mean, there is a, there's clearly a personal dimension to this as uh, as well um mike i know you've been collecting stories we've spoken before uh, about eu academics who've decided to leave or have already left and you know the the evidence is may uh, as many as 1300 eu nationals may academics may ha have left over the course of the last few months you mentioned uh, the provost of ucl saying 95 percent of his staff had already been approached by eu institutions how real do you think is this prospect of a brain drain of of top talent and and you know does it the, the corollary of that presumably is that fewer people will be applying are, are we seeing this already well there's been a 30 percent um increase in the number of eu staff leaving their universities over the past couple of years so mm. i mean that's some pretty clear evidence there I think within institutions, I've received emails from academics who say that they feel they're being overlooked for promotions because of this this feeling of uncertainty. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, there are the problems with securing grant funding. And on top of that, with all the sort of all the rumor and rhetoric around the visa regime, it's mm. not exactly a welcoming climate. Mm. So you can certainly see how that might might create an incentive mm. for academics to look elsewhere, especially if, as you mentioned, they're ac receiving active approaches from other institutions. Absolutely. It would be very yes. easy for them to yes. leave. Not to mention the old letter from the Home Office saying, leave now. Alison, <laughs> <laughs> um, is that something that you're picking up on as well? Well, I mean, just to place devil's advocate slightly here, I would be intrigued to know how many staff at UCL are routinely approached. Mm. Because, I, I mean... UCL is a you know, fantastic institute, and I would expect actually 95% of, of its staff to be In fact, sought it, after. It, 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 something <laughs> would know, be going yeah. wrong if they weren't, is, yes. what, is what you're saying. <laughs> OK. Mike? <laughs> well, I doubt Michael Arthur would highlight it so strongly if it, if it were not different from before. But playing devil's advocate is a good thing. And to play devil's advocate further, it's been good to see that in the recent round of European Research Council grants, which is the very highly sought after mm. one, uh, the UK was back on top in first place in, in terms of landing those. And I think our most prestigious universities will continue to do well because they are prestigious. Mm. I worry about the middle band universities. 
that um, have been doing very well from the more quietly from the whole uh, European environment. Having said that about the ERC grants, um, there was a piece in Bloomberg recently um, interviewing Sir Andre Geim, one of the no- Nobel Prize winners and co-discoverers of graphene. And he said that right throughout this year, he has had no applications uh, to work with him on Mary Curie grants from the EU, whereas usually he gets those year in, year out, hmm. and he's thinking about leaving. Um, and so if someone at his level is thinking about leaving, then that's that's worrying. I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect that. But yes, I mean, I, I get... In, uh, people saying on a writing to to me via social mm. media on a regular basis saying that they're leaving and immediately after the brexit vote happened we did a survey on what the impact has been and there was a lot of people citing xenophobia sometimes very personal examples uh, people saying that um, their places on collaborative frameworks that are being planned are in doubt or Mm -hmm. saying that they have intentions to leave or saying that someone who was going to come has now turned it down. So Mm -hmm. we are seeing this this slow sort of under-the-radar hemorrhaging of talent of people more likely to leave and less likely to come in. And I think it's good that the UK government has now put science central to their industrial strategy and making all the right noises about funding, but they really need to set the right cultural tone for our country to actually Mm. be attractive to European immigrants and and Mm. immigrants uh, globally in order for them to want to come and work in this mm. environment. Mm. Um, let's let's sort of move a little bit um, lower down the food chain, if that's not too rude a way to, to, to discuss it. Is there anything sensible that we can say? I mean, we're really kind of, you know, in the dark, aren't we, uh, um, for, for, for much of this. But is there anything sensible we can say about student programs, uh, particularly about Erasmus and about the... Um, you know, the ability of and willingness of, of EU students, undergraduates, to come and study uh, in Britain and, and the capacity of British students to go and, to go and, uh, and live and work abroad. Do we, any hints, any, any, any direction of where, where we might be going, Alison? There's always been a strong asymmetry between the number of international students coming to the UK and the number of British students leaving to study abroad. Yeah, Britain is a very attractive study destination. It's second only to the US in the absolute numbers of students Students that it recruits and um, international students and when you think of the different population size between the US and the UK that is extraordinary and it's just because British universities are world-class and people want to come and study here and that's why I'm less concerned than Mike is about uh, th- about Brexit I think that um, you know ambitious EU nationals will still want to come and work in UK universities and I think that ambitious EU students will also want to come and there is actually a flip side uh, a slight sort of bonus looking just at the financials mm-hmm. for uh British universities. Because at the moment, um, universities are only allowed to treat uh, EU students in the same way as they treat their own, you know, local yes. domestic UK students. nationals, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's, nationals it, it, of whatever country we're absolutely. talking about. Yeah. So, you know, in, in England, um, you, EU students pay the same fees as mm. English drama style students. In Scotland, uh, EU students pay no fees mm. because uh, Scottish drama style students pay no fees. Now, After Brexit, that will change and universities will be able to charge whatever the market will bear. So it may be that fewer students from the EU come, but they pay more money. And so actually the financial bottom line for British universities is better. In Scotland, there have been lots of concerns about um, 
EU students taking Scottish places. Uh, you know, uh, reports in the papers there you know, with uh, Scottish students uh, concerned that they've been denied their rightful place and it's gone instead to an EU national. Uh, once EU nationals are paying their own uh, fees, then the caps on the Scottish places um, mm. won't apply to them. And so that concern will be removed. Be so, removed. I mean, there are a few, a few ups. upsides. There's silver linings somewhere. Ra- Rachel, Era- Erasmus, do we, has the government said anything about Erasmus? Um, from what I understand, I don't think there's been any full clarity on mm. Erasmus yet. Um, it's... It's quite a big deal for the UK in the sense that the UK is the top host country for Erasmus. Um, So obviously that will impact the number of EU students coming if it's no longer a member. As with many other programmes, one of the the conditions for the UK remaining a part of it will probably be connected with freedom of movement. Mm. But an alternative to that that the government might consider would be to, it would probably be affordable to set up its own Erasmus scheme that would be able to allow student mobility to continue and it might take more of a global approach as well. And the moment UK students actually aren't as large participants in Mm. Erasmus as lots of other European countries. So on that side of things, it might not impact the the type of of study programmes that are on offer. But of course, lots of languages students in universities or prospective languages students are going to be quite worried about their year abroad Mm. and the funding that they receive to enable them to study at universities in EU. That's quite a big change to their course and there aren't assurances around that yet. Mm. Mike, have you heard any noises about Erasmus? Uh, no, I, I haven't, because I think the government has just got far too much on its plate. So things that would otherwise be important are utterly sidelined. With with university students, international university students, there are two levels here. One is the EU level, mm. and then the other is, is global and mm. more general. Uh, on the EU level, I think that Erasmus will probably be kept going by hook or by crook, by some way or another. Uh, we'll find a way to do it. Um, we have already seen drops in applications to universities from EU students because of the uncertainty. I think when uh, fees kick in, then that also would exacerbate that. And it is a shame to lose EU students because they are 1.5 times more likely to get a first-class degree, twice as likely to is go on. Is that so? On to, I didn't yeah, realize yeah. that. Oh. So uh, they tend mm. to be you know, brighter, more adventurous, you know, because they're more mobile and they come in and they not only add the culture, of course, and we keep forgetting this when we start analysing the systems, how enriching it is to have that culture, but also they do help uh, drive quality up and make links for our own students to then go and have those links internationally. So I think it would be sad to start squeezing them out and, uh, okay, squeezing them for Mm. money and all of that. But um, that's the way it is. The bigger picture is, however, that Theresa May is crazy. Uh, on the matter of international students. And this is not controversial for me to say this because um, it has been the case that the the Cabinet had been thinking this not only currently but also previously when she was Home Secretary. To include international students in the overall immigration numbers is riddled with problems. Firstly, um, not even most Brits, when polled, think that that should be the case. Secondly, if she's saying this is for international comparisons, fine, you can use one number for international comparisons, but communicate to a home audience the split, the division, because people see a difference between it. And then also, we had recently the admission that we are not uh, 90,000 students staying in the country after their degrees. It's more like 4.5,000 or 4.6, something like that. And the government have known this since 2015. Mm. 
but not said it and allowed those figures not just to stand on their own right but then also be included in the immigration figures which of course drove Brexit so there and, is and they've used they've been used as a justification for sure, for, for, for sure. immigration policy yeah. yeah and this whole hostile attitude to international students especially when Theresa May was home secretary has had devastating effects on students from India for example in 2010 40,000 students from India were in UK universities. It's dropped now to 17,000, okay? This is from a Commonwealth country. It's dropped by over 50%, whereas they're increasing everywhere elsewhere. In Germany, it's now over 10,000 students uh, from India in German universities. Mm. That's sad. I, I mean, immigration is clearly uh, uh, has been a huge driver, uh, was a huge driver in the Brexit vote. It's a huge driver in the current government's uh, attitude to Brexit. Um, now, the, the the government science position paper that was published earlier this month called for, uh, and this is a very familiar phrase, a new deep and special partnership with the EU. Isn't it the case that any kind of new deep and special partnership simply isn't going to be possible with the kind of immigration policy that the government appeared to be spelling out in that leaked Home Office document that came to The Guardian a few days ago, the one that uh, spoke of a, a two-year stay for low-skilled EU workers and a three- to five-year stay for residents, for, for, for highly skilled workers, which clearly would include academics and researchers. I mean, free movement is surely... Isn't free movement the key to whatever... Uh, uh, um, agreement around science and, and, and higher education Britain finally manages to reach with, with the EU. Alison. I'm looking at this from a very sort of practical point. I don't think that we will be able to have free movement post-Brexit. I think that's one of the, the red lines. And so now we have to think about how to work around that whether it's you know, free exchange of ideas, whether it's sort of freedom to collaborate without spending too much time in each other's labs. A lot of Skyping. A lot of Skyping. Um, those international partnerships absolutely are vital to the UK and must continue. And we now need to work out how to make that happen. Mm. Mike, any clues? <laughs> yeah, well... The thing about the government position paper was that it was absolutely right to say that this country wants to work closely with the EU on science and the EU wants to work closely with the UK on science. That partnership works. It adds value. It's been doing really well. And the position paper just set out why that was the case mm. and said it hopes for the same in the future. Didn't give a great deal of detail the about how to is, achieve that. Yeah, the problem <laughs> is we're a quarter of the way through the time before yeah. coming out. Mm. There are clear obstacles that we all know. This paper did not lay out what those obstacles are, let alone solutions for them. And so with the sands of time running out, with a whole stack of frameworks that we want to leave on our plate... Mm we really need to get on a move on with sorting this out. Now, with issues like freedom of movement, there are countries that participate in the EU science programme as associate members without having freedom of movement. Yes, they're outside Europe. They're like Israel and Tunisia and so forth and so on. But would the EU allow us to do something that is partial on free movement or something like that? 
We don't know because we haven't tested those waters. We haven't had those hard conversations. And also with funding of the budget, would they allow us to support Eastern European countries via our own mechanisms? We don't know. We haven't put that in the science position paper or started asking those questions. So we really need to get a move on with solutions if we want to stay in. Incidentally, with free movement, I think we can do everything that we want within immigration and controlling immigration within the free movement framework. We have that three-month limit. We can register people when they come to work like they do in Switzerland. I know I did that. Well, I didn't do it within seven days of arriving, so I got fined. They're very strict like that. But then there's the Swiss a, a deal that I told possible. you about yeah. before that you can prioritize nationals over internationals. There is so much flexibility within this we framework. Could do all that. That we I could have done all that without leaving the EU. That's the, yeah, that's for the, sure. that's the, that's the yep. irony of it. Um, Rachel, the, I mean, the, the other uh, uh, big driver... Uh, clearly, you know, that it was all about taking back control of our borders, which is which is immigration and can, taking back also control of our money, which is which is which is the amount that, that, that Britain pays into uh, the EU budget or discrete parts of the EU budget. Now, there have been reports that the government might be prepared to spend up to, you know, maybe a billion pounds or something to stay in EU science programmes. None of that's been confirmed. We certainly haven't had it from, from anybody in, in, in government. Do, do we think that's, that, that's realistic? Do you think the government will have to uh, pay a, a relatively substantial sum into the EU coffers in order to be able uh, to maintain this deep and special relationship with EU science and, and higher education? Well, with respect to the European research area, that's what happens to associate countries at the moment. Um, there's certainly, when I've spoken to anyone on the EU side, there's a lot of resistance, the idea that the UK can just cherry pick the programmes it wants to be a part of and with the conditions that it wants attached. So it seems very unlikely that they wouldn't have to do that. The question mark is probably more over how much it would be. I know there are other projections based on what the smaller countries pay, which taking into account the UK GDP would be close to two billion pounds rather than the 1.3 billion that, mm. that's been quoted so i think they're going to find this quite a hefty hefty membership bill is that going to be an acceptable kind of number politically alison do you think there's so much up in the air i really don't know <laughs> but um i think one of the sort of the really big problems that uk universities have with brexit is they were campaigning very strongly on the losing side and when mike says you know the government's unclear about yeah, what to do next you know in other circumstances the government might have turned to universities for help and advice and that isn't happening i can see why that's not happening it would be enormously helpful if we weren't where we were but we are but we are are there any positives in this talk i mean you've been trying hard throughout this episode <laughs> to come up with some <laughs> might, any, any, any positives in in brexit for the for the edu- higher education sector well, you, you already know my positive on this because we were chatting about this before, which is um, the needed education from it. I mean, for all of these decades, we have been building up frameworks of collaboration internationally, whether in science, whether in health, whether in uh, uh, environment, um, and now tech and data that have been completely off the radar in terms of national conversations about where our politics is going. And that's that's been no good. And also our government has been engaging with the EU, doing what it wants, mm. and that has sometimes jarred with what's actually wanted at home. So if you think about Turkish accession or if you think about eastward expansion or even incandescent bulbs these were all <laughs> things that our government was pushing on the eu but then these were all things that we were blaming the eu for during the referendum debate so um the education that we are having now about 
all of these frameworks that we are trying to leave actually is it is the conversations that we should have had before the referendum but at some it's point we need to, to have that education mm. about what's going on yeah. and i think it's beneficial for the rest of europe to actually watch our plight and say oh i didn't know about that one you know they're getting free education from all of this okay well we're, we're beginning to run out of time i just like one quick final sort of tour of the table um you know, it, 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 the question I think really is where the government now is on higher education and and research. Is it just another example of Britain or the, this government wanting to have its cake and eat it, cherry pick the best parts while, you know, sort of getting rid of, of, of any of the obligations? And, and can it be successful in that? Where will we be in, I don't know, 10 years time where where will british science and high and, and and british universities be in 10 years time are you optimistic or or pessimistic mike the sensible way to approach brexit if you were serious about it would be to follow a model like flexit which was put out by brexiteers years before we had this debate uh, led by richard north and others which involves firstly stepping into ea and efta for a while making sure that footing is stable there before then going on to um the uh, full withdrawal as yes it were. exactly yeah. um but what has happened is that we are doing a rush job on it. And because it's been driven by toxic politics and impatient politics and Veruca Salt politics, I want it now, Daddy, I don't care how, I want it now, we are in real danger of um, causing systems failure by pulling out of various frameworks at the same time and not even thinking them through fully, let alone their interactions. So um, for me, the issue is not whether you believe Brexit is a good thing or a bad thing, but rather the way it's being managed now by this government is actually quite reckless. Mm. Rachel? I think it's difficult to say what it will all look like because so much is up in the air at the moment. And the EU has said that it won't negotiate on science and research until the fundamentals Article are, 50 is sorted exactly, out. Yeah. And, and the, the, the things that they see as most important, like freedom of movement and, and the divorce bill. So before we've, get, we've got to that stage, it's hard to predict what, what the future will be like for universities. I mean, in terms of student recruitment, there was a 5% drop in applications from EU students. Um, although, as Alison mentioned, if universities are able to charge international student fees, they might make up some of the, the drop mm. in funding that comes through that. And there's also been a view that there might be higher numbers of international student applications from outside the EU, given the devalued pound. So that sort of remains to be seen what it'll be like for universities' bottom line. And again, there are going to be some institutions that suffer more than others. The top universities will probably never mm. have a problem with recruitment in, in a way that those further down the the rankings tables mm. will yes Alison uh, can we make up the money can we <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I mean British higher education at the moment faces two interfering um, pressures yeah one is Brexit and the other is the new higher education research act which was passed earlier this year and that is you know, deliberately creating competitive pressure on English universities and it envisages some universities going to the wall and it asks each university to it requires them to write an exit strategy for what happens to their students when they go bust and uh, going back to what uh, Mike was saying at the outset I believe that you know in 10 years time the Oxford and Cambridges of this world will be just fine mm. You know, they are the one of the oldest institutions in the world. Um, they predate the rise of the modern state. 
global will, reputation for global excellence. global reputation. They, they will still be here in 10 years' time. It's those institutions that have been you know, very quietly getting on with supporting local economic growth, yeah. recruiting EU students mm. you know, modestly, you're working in... Yeah, the, the unfashionable parts of the UK, mm. those are the ones that Those are the ones that might be in danger. OK, well, thank you very much, all of you. That is it for this week. My thanks to Rachel Hall, Alison Goddard, Mike Galsworthy for joining me. Please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. If you want to get in touch about Brexit, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. And if you'd like to review the pod and be in with a chance of featuring in our podcast weekly column then please email podcasts at theguardian.com till next week then i'm john henley the producer is rowan slaney this was brexit means and thank you very much for listening for more great podcasts from the guardian just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Listen. 